Well, good morning, church family. Listen, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3, so I want to go ahead and invite you to turn there. But wasn't worship good this morning? Can we put our hands together for these guys? Um, It's such a blessing not only to have Reagan Hall back um, and Mark back this week, but also to see Zoe Hall up here this week singing with her dad and with her sister. But listen, if you notice that Zoe had a little bit of a different glow about her, it's because she's got a little bling on her finger, you know what I mean? Like She's recently engaged, so we certainly want to congratulate them on that for sure. Um, but it was, it was a sweet morning of worship, and I wanted to use this opportunity to let you know that anytime we start to sense the Spirit of God on a move, and you start to see a little bit of momentum started to get started, uh, we need to pray and we need to plea and we need to beg God to continue to work and to continue to work. And let me, let me explain to you what I mean. Um, we talked about this, how we've had about 15 or 16 people baptized over the course of the past three or four weeks. And we got even more people that are lined up to get baptized in the days ahead. On Wednesday night, we had about 170 students that are here uh, for worship. And Corey now leading them, listen, two of them place their faith and their trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior for the very first time. And we get to see and be a part of what these students are doing here in the life of our church. So I want to ask you to continue to pray and ask God to continue to move uh, because we certainly don't want to take it for granted what he's doing. And we certainly can feel a movement of God taking place um, among us. Um, But we're going to be in Ephesians chapter day. We're, We're actually starting a new series that we're calling We Are. And the whole point of this series is we're going to talk about who we are as a church. Uh, There are really four pillars. Um, We don't have this like in our vocabulary per se, but this is in our DNA. There's basically four pillars that we want to be as a church, and we want to be a people who love God. We want to be a people who love each other, the church. We want to be a people who love our city, and we want to be a people who love the nations, who love our world. So we're going to talk about those four different distinguishing marks or characteristics of our church, who we are Over the course of the next four weeks, today we're going to talk about what it looks like to be a church that loves God. Um, Really what we're going to do over the next four weeks is we're going to answer a question. We're going to ask the question, what's keeping us today from loving God? Or next Sunday, what's keeping us from loving the church? The following Sunday, what's keeping us from loving our city? And then the fourth Sunday, what's keeping us from loving the world? So that's kind of where we're headed in this series known as we are, but there is one very clear, undeniable reality in Scripture. Listen, you ready? One very clear, undeniable reality in Scripture, and it is this. It's that God loves you. And some of you, you walked in here today and you needed to hear that. Some of you, you've heard it literally since you were in grade school, and you've sung songs about it, and it's, it's kind of grown numb to you. But you need to understand that there's one very clear, undeniable truth in Scripture, and that is this, that God loves you. And maybe somebody's in here thinking today, you know what, God can't love me. You don't know what all I've done. No, God loves you. Some of you find it very hard to accept the fact that God loves you, but I want to convince you today that he does indeed love you. Listen to the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 3. This is Paul offering a prayer for the strength of the church of Ephesus. And in the midst of that prayer that he's praying for these specific people, this is what he says in verses 18 and 19. 
he prayed that they would have, watch, strength to comprehend. Why would he use the word comprehend? He's saying, I hope that you have strength to comprehend because what I'm asking you to comprehend is rather incomprehensible. And he says, I want you to have strength to comprehend with who? With all the saints. He's saying, what I want you to comprehend, you cannot know if you exist in isolation. He's saying, what I want you to comprehend, you only comprehend when you exist in the context of biblical community, also known as the church, with all the saints. Strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and watch 19, and to know the love of Christ. That's what he wants you to comprehend, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. If I were to poll the audience today and say, how many of you in this room want to be filled with all the fullness of God, I would believe that almost every single person in this room would say, that's me. I want to be full with all or filled with all the fullness of God. Well, Paul gives us basically how we can do that. He tells us that you can know the love of Christ that surpasses any amount of knowledge so that you may be filled with the fullness of God. What is he talking about here? He's talking about God's great, unbelievable, undeniable, very clear love for you. You can know it. You can know that you know that you know that you know that God loves you. You don't have to think it. You don't have to hope it. You can know that God loves you and you grow in your awareness of God's love through the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. What is he talking about here? He's saying that this God that loves you is a God that's full of, uh, he's, a, he's a God, he's an inf- it's full of infinity. Like it's a, it's a love that has no limits. It, it, he's an infinitude of God is what that means. It just means that he has absolutely no limits that the love of God for you, Paul would say is incomprehensible love. That you and I don't have the ability to fully comprehend the depths of God's love, but we can still dive into the pool. We can still pursue and chase after the knowledge of it. And Paul says, I want you to know God's love in such a deep way, but he also understands that we as humans have limits and we cannot fully understand it. And church family, that's my prayer for you. My prayer for us is that we as a church would grow deeper in our awareness of God's love for us, that we would understand who he is and what he's done on our behalf, that we would know the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth that God does indeed love us. But listen to this. Love is not merely what God does. It's who God is. God does what he does because he is what he is. You follow that? The reason God loves you is because he is indeed a God of love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 tells us this, that God is love. The entire biblical narrative, that entire Bible from beginning to end is a story of redemption of how God loves sinful, wicked humanity, and he did everything necessary to reconcile that humanity back to himself. It's a story of love. Paul says later in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, we're going to read it in a second in a moment. He says, and Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering, reminding us again of his undeniable love for us. What about Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8? This is what Paul says there, for while we were still weak, while you and I were still sinners, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, but... Perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. Only a God who is love would love in that way. So it's clear in Scripture, it's clear in the redemption work of Christ that God does indeed love you. But here's, here's where things get kind of tricky. Not only does God love you, but Scripture from beginning to end exhorts you to love God. You receive the love that God has for you, and then you reciprocate that by giving that love back to him. The first and the greatest commandment in Scripture is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and it says this, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. This entire book, by the way, the book of Deuteronomy, is full of exhortations to love. Listen, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12 says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways. Listen, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 1. You are exhorted here. It says, You shall therefore love the Lord your God. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 13. It says this, To love the Lord your God and serve him. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 22. It says, Love the Lord your God and walk in obedience to him. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 16, it says, If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, listen to what he says, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways. So all through the book of Deuteronomy, at the beginning of your Bible, what you see is an exhortation for the people that are loved by God to love God. And this exhortation, it doesn't stop with Deuteronomy and Moses. It actually goes over into the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 22, verse 5, only be careful to observe the commandments and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. Listen, to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways. One chapter over, Joshua chapter 23, verse 11, be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. The psalmist even jumps in on this exhortation of love. He says in Psalms 31, verse 23, Love the Lord your God. All you his saints, the Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. And that's all the Old Testament. You jump over into the New Testament. This theme continues. The Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus answered him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. 1 Peter 1.8, though you have not seen him, talking about Jesus, God in flesh, you love him, Peter says there. What about Ephesians chapter 6, verse 24? Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love uncorruptible. Ever heard that phrase? Ever, that, that phrase ever caught your attention? That grace be to those who love the Lord Jesus Christ with love uncorruptible. What does that mean? It means grace is offered to those who love Jesus with an undying love. A, a love that never fades. In the Gospel of John, Jesus asked Peter three times, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And all three times, Peter responded with, Yes, you know that I love you. In Mark, Jesus tells us, Love the Lord your God, circling all the way back to Deuteronomy, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Church family, the scriptures are abundantly clear. We are exhorted 
to love the God who first loved us. We are called to be a people who love God. Now back in Ephesians, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5, the first two verses. I want to read these to you because I think this sets the foundation for where we're going this morning. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, it says this, Therefore, be imitators of God, beloved children. And then he says, and walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What is Paul doing here? Paul is challenging you and he's calling me and he's calling us as a church to imitate God. He's saying that I want you to be imitators of God, but the question then becomes is how, Trey? How, Paul, how do we imitate God? Well, it's clear. Paul says, walk in love. You emulate and you imitate God best when you are walking in love. Why? Because that's who God is. If he is love and you walk in love, you're emulating the God who is love. That's how scripture works. So the question on the table this morning is this. What then is keeping you and I, as men and women of faith, as followers of Jesus, as people who have placed our faith and our trust in the finished work of Christ, what is keeping us, if Scripture has clearly commanded us or exhorted us to love God, what is keeping us from loving Him? There are three things this morning that I want to give you that I believe that are keeping us as a church, us as individuals, from loving the Lord. The first one is this. The first thing that I think is keeping you and I from loving God is that we reject God. We reject God's authority. We reject God's authority. What do you mean, Trey? Well, if you and I are honest, we do not like the fact that anyone else would be king of our lives. We want the final say-so in our own individual lives. We want to decide what we're going to do, when we're going to do it, who we're going to do it with, where we're going to go and do it, and we don't want anyone telling us that we can't do it or we can do it. Like, we just want to be the one who rules in the final authority of our own individual lives. And when we reject God's authority, that essentially is keeping us, hindering us from being able to love God the way that he deserves. So the undeniable reality of humanity in their depravity is that we want the final authority in our own individual lives. And instead of submitting our lives to God's authority, we want to take our lives in our own hands and we want to decide what's right. We want to decide what's good for us. That's actually what's going on in our culture today. You do you, I'll do me. As long as what you do doesn't affect me and what I do doesn't affect you, we should all be good. It's not only a cultural thing, it's a sinful thing. It's rooted in selfishness, and it's rooted in rejecting the authority of God in our lives. Now, by the way, where did this begin? This goes all the way back to Genesis in the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? You remember what happened in Genesis? God created man. He created woman. He put them in the center of the Garden of Eden, and he told them, here I am. I'm going to put you in the middle of a forest full of fruit trees. You can have any tree in this entire garden to eat of, but there's one tree, he says, you are forbidden to eat the fruit of, and that is the tree that's in the center of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what did Adam and Eve do? They go and hang out at the one tree. I mean, think about it, guys. Just think if you were to Go to Byron, Georgia, and you went to Lane's Peach Packing Company or whatever, and you were to walk through all of these peach trees. I mean, there's just fields upon fields upon fields of peach trees. And they, the, the guy who owned the field came to said to you, hey, listen, you can, you can pick from any tree. Just don't pick from that one because that one isn't good for you. Like, just stay away from it. 
I mean, how dumb do we have to be to go over and hang out at that tree and taste from that fruit? You follow what I mean? Like, it's, it's not even, it, it's almost, it's, it's just, it's not even right that they would do this. But what it boils down to is they're rejecting God's authority. They're thinking, well, maybe God's withholding something good for us. And what happens in that tree that they're hanging out by? This, the serpent comes out. Satan comes out. And he begins to tempt them, does he not? And he tempts them by saying what? He's saying, man, maybe if you eat from this, there's something God knows and there's something that's good for you that, that God's withholding from you. And if you eat from this, you're going to find out what it is. And, and, and they fall prey to that tactic. And they eat, thinking that maybe they would find out what it is that's good that God is holding, withholding from them. See, the sin was not that they ate the fruit, whatever the fruit was. The sin's not that they ate the fruit. There's nothing particularly sinful about eating fruit. In fact, that's actually probably a pretty good thing, right, for most of us. The sin is that they rejected God's right to rule in their life. The sin is that God told them what not to do, and they went and did it anyway. The sin is that they wanted to occupy the throne of their own hearts, and they wanted to choose what they felt like was good and right for them. That's what the sin was. Now, I want you to think about this. The question then becomes, why did God even establish authority in their lives? I mean, it just seems kind of weird that God who created the garden and he created man and woman who he put in the garden would even establish any sort of authority in their life to begin with. Like, why would God do this? Was he just wanting to keep them from having fun? I mean, did he, did he not want them to be able to experience all of life? Was there something he's withholding? from Adam and Eve that they may want to enjoy and participate in? Was he setting them up? Hey, I'm going to put a tree right here that you can't eat from. I'm just going to set you up and I hope you fail. Like, was that what he was doing? I mean, why would God establish his authority over them? Well, he tells us in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. Listen. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of any tree of the garden. I mean, the whole garden belongs to you. You can have the fruit of any tree in the whole garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Why? Here it goes. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Church, you've got to understand this. God doesn't establish his authority to keep us from what is good. He establishes his authority to protect us from what is bad. And what was bad for Adam and Eve is if they ate of that tree, they would surely die. It wasn't that he was withholding something good from them. He gave them everything good in the garden. Every other tree that was there was there for their good pleasure. But if they eat of that one, he said, you'll surely die. This wasn't about eating fruit. This was about who is going to occupy the throne of your heart. Is it going to be you or is it going to be me? Who is going to be the boss and the ruler and the Lord of your life? Is it going to be you or is it going to be me? My family and I, in 2021, we welcomed a new addition to our household, and it was not a kid. Praise the Lord. Okay. But we purchased a puppy from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, a golden doodle, mini golden doodle by the name of Ollie. And we love Ollie. Ollie is a part of our family. Um, she, she has grandparents that love to take her in when we go out on trips. Don't let them lie to you. They love taking, them, taking her in. Um, but she is the, she's the joy of our heart. I'm telling you, I come home from work, 
and if you want to feel like a million bucks, come to my house and let and meet Ollie. Like that girl, she wags her tails and she pants and she hoots and hollers until you come over and you give her the love that she is dying for. Um, and she will. She will make you feel literally like a million bucks. You come and you knock on my door. Ollie's going to greet you. And she wants you to love on her just a little bit, and then she's going to leave you alone. Okay, like that's usually what she does. But Ollie is a, a, an incredible dog. Okay, we have bells that hang from our door handle on our back door, and she knows to go and ring that bell when she has to go outside to potty. All right, but here's the thing. We have to put Ollie on a leash when she goes out to potty. Because Ollie, as much as she loves me and as much as she loves our family and as much as she loves people, she also loves squirrels and she loves birds. So the moment you let Ollie outside, if she's not on a leash, she is going to dart off chasing either a squirrel or a bird or if there's a person out there somewhere, she's going to run straight to them. And without a doubt, it happens all the time. Even if we exercise our authority over Ollie and say, no, you say she's still going to go because what she sees, the delight of her heart is so strong that she disobeys anything that we say and she shoots off for it. But believe it or not, there are moments in our life where Ollie does disobey and she chases a squirrel and she goes out into the wheat field that's full of deer ticks and fleas and everything else and then she comes back because I yell at her and I demand that she comes back but when she comes back, her tail is tucked, she's low to the ground, and she's looking at me out of the corner of her eye. And it's as if to say, Dad, like, why aren't you letting me chase the squirrel? This is fun. Why do you want to ruin all of my fun? Like, I sit in your house in, like, prison all day long, and I get outside and get to go chase squirrels, and I get in trouble. Like, why are you withholding something good from me? Um, Elizabeth, she's here probably somewhere, but she's one of our neighbors and she will walk the street a lot. And if Ollie sees Elizabeth, Ollie takes off after Elizabeth and, and just loves on her. Um, but there's times we have to demand that she comes back because Elizabeth's in the road and we don't want Ollie in the road. Um, but long story short, we exercise our authority. Why? Are we trying to keep something good from the dog? No. We're doing it because we're protecting her. And that is exactly what God does with his people. God exercises his authority over us, not because he wants to keep us from participating in pleasurable or enjoyable experiences. God exercises his authority over us because he wants to occupy the throne of our heart and he wants to protect us from things that he knows is not necessarily good for us. And that's who this God is. You know, one of the things that maybe you're guilty of and I'm guilty of sometimes as well is I think of God exercising his authority as if he's this cosmic killjoy who just wants me to be miserable. And that would be a cruel father if that's really how he functioned. But a father who loves his children the way that God loves his children, we know that that's not necessarily true. That instead he's protecting our hearts from what could be bad. Listen to this quote. This is by John Cooper. John Cooper is the lead singer for a Christian rock band named Skillet. Some of you know Skillet. Um, Skillet is a, a they were really popular, I guess, in the early 2000s and maybe even into the mid-2000s, so 2015 area. Uh, but listen to this quote by John Cooper. I thought it was fabulous. Uh, it says this, I'm amazed that so many Christians want the benefits of the kingdom of God. We do. With the caveat that they themselves will be the king. <laughs> I think he gets this. What he's saying is, I am amazed 
that how many Christians, man, they want the blessings of God and they want the prosperity of God and they want all the good things, the benefits that God has to offer, that the kingdom of God has to offer. But there's a caveat for the Christian. The caveat for the Christian is they also want to do what they want to do the way that they want to do it. They don't want God, who is the giver of those benefits, to be the one who rules their life. Do you love God enough that you're willing to submit to his authority in every aspect of your life? Is the fact that you are full of self-authority the one thing that's hindering you from loving God the way that he deserves to be loved by you? Like, have you truly and fully and holistically surrendered every single aspect of your life over to the lordship of Christ, and you don't go to him and complain and dispute and cry and whine, when things don't go according to plan because you know that he's the author of the universe and he holds everything together and the one who created also sustains it and he has your best interest and his glory in mind and everything that he does is for that purpose. It's for your good and it's for his glory. Is there something in your life that you need to surrender to the authority to Christ today? So we reject God's authority. That's the first thing that keeps us from loving God. There's a second thing that keeps us from loving God. We love ourselves too much. What keeps us from loving God is that we love ourselves too much. People are totally in love with themselves. Listen to this. On average, women look into a mirror 34 times a day. And I started to think about this. Does that include, like, the windows of a car? Does that include, like, reflections in the water? Because, you know, just like I do, like, they walk by any sort of reflection, and they're going to stop, and they're going to look. And guys, before you think you're off the hook, they might look in the mirror 34 times a day, but you look in it 27 times a day. So you're just as full as yourself as they are as theirs. Like, we're just, we're like that. We're a self-consumed culture. We're full of ourselves. We're in love with ourselves. There are 93 million selfies taken every single day. But get this, to post one selfie, on average, the person has to take seven pictures. You're taking seven pictures to post one selfie, and of all those selfies posted, there's 93 million of those. Don't we put that in perspective for you? That's one-third of the world's population a day posting a picture of themselves. In fact, individuals spend 54 hours a year, that is seven minutes a day, taking selfies alone. Our teenagers today are referred to as the generation of the self-obsessed. That's what they're referred to as. According to a survey in 2019, U.S. teens spent eight hours and 39 minutes of screen time on their phones. In proper perspective, that is an hour and 30 minutes more than the average teenager sleeps. They're spending more time on their phones usually through social media, watching videos, and staying connected to each other, than they are even sleeping at night. So you might be thinking, well, I get all that, and I, I can see all of that. That's rather clear, but how is that keeping us from loving God? It's keeping us from loving God because it's called a misplaced priority. Where our love should be directed Godward, it's instead directed inward. We're in love with ourselves too much. When Jesus taught the disciples to pray, how did he do it? He said this in Matthew chapter 6, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is a picture into the heart of Jesus, the Son of God. He wanted the name of God to be exalted. In the great commandment in Matthew 22, Jesus says, and he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul. 
and with all of your mind. What I find so interesting about what Jesus does here is he never says, hey, I want you to love yourself with all of your heart, all of your soul, and with all of your mind. I mean, it's really not how will be the name of the Lord, but how will be the name of fill in the blank with your name. Like, I want you to be exalted, I want you to be famous, and I want you, your name to go forth. Jesus never says that. In the list of priorities and affections of your life, my question to you is this, is God at the top? Is he? When you go through what's important to you, like is God secondary, tertiary, somewhere down the line, or is he at the top of that list? There are so many things these days that are competing for God's rightful place. As parents, we want our kids to get that scholarship, and we want them to get that grade, and we want them to be, you know, get that accomplishment or that achievement, so we work them tirelessly to be able to achieve all of that, and at the end of the day, they get it, and they lose God. As parents, we want to climb the corporate ladder, and we want that promotion, and we want that opportunity, and we want to lead those people, and then we get there, but we've lost God along the way. One of the dangers of the culture that you and I live in is this, that we are being taught that self-love is a good thing. And by the way, self-love is a very good thing when it comes to loving yourself enough to take care of yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. But self-love is not the gospel. Self-love is, in fact, the anti-gospel, as the world defines it. As image bearers, we should take care of our lives, and we should take care of our physical lives and our emotional lives, our spiritual lives. But self-love, as the culture defines it, it's self-seeking and it's selfish. The goal of the Christian life is less of me and more of you. It's not to love me more. When Jesus' love takes root in our lives and it becomes who we are and it consumes who we are, what happens is we find a greater ability to love ourselves more as well as loving others more. So the question is, are the affections of our hearts directed towards God or are the affections of our hearts directed towards towards self you might be wondering well Trey how do I know if I love myself too much I mean I think that's a rather silly question if I'm honest Uh, but I'm going to answer it anyway the question is is where do you spend most of your time where do you spend most of your time what do you direct your kids to most I mean what do you want shaping and molding the lives of your children Do you see real estate and investment properties as a better investment than the eternal things of God? If you were followed around for a week, what would people say is most important to you? Loving ourselves will keep us from loving God. Third and finally this morning, we find our identity in self. We reject God's authority, we love ourselves too much, and we find our identity in self. Every person in this room finds their identity in someone or something. My question to you this morning is what defines you? I'm not asking you what you say defines you. I'm not asking you what's in your Facebook bio or what's in your Instagram bio. I'm asking you like legitimately what defines you? Is it a job, a career, a sport, a group of friends? Is it your likes, is it your followers? Is it your bank account, is it your grades, is it your kids' grades? What defines you? One way we can love the Lord is to allow the Lord to define our lives. 
Your identity as children of God isn't supposed to be in the things of the world. Your identity as a child of God is supposed to be in who God, through Christ, says that you are in him. Listen to what the Bible says about you. We sung about this just a moment ago. The Bible tells us that you are loved. We walk through that. And this morning, it doesn't matter how hard anyone screams at you that you are not loved and you're not worthy of love. The Bible says you indeed are loved. And not only are you loved, but you're chosen. When no one else on the earth will choose you, maybe you feel that way, God chose you. You're forgiven. No matter what extent that that goes to, no matter what crime you've committed, no matter what gross infraction of the law that you've done, the Bible is clear that you are forgiven if you confess that before the Lord. You're redeemed as a child of God. You no longer belong to the ways of the world. You now belong to him. You're his child. The Bible says you're adopted. You're adopted. You are in his family, and as a son and a daughter of God, you will receive his full inheritance. You're no longer a foreigner or a stranger. The Bible says you're a fellow citizen with God's people and a member of his household. The Bible goes further to say the old man in you, once you become a believer, is gone. You are now a new creation. It goes further to to explain it this way. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. The Bible says about you specifically that you are God's special possession in Christ Jesus. And in fact, when all of the world feels like it's pushing against you, the Bible says no, because of Christ, you are even more than a conqueror and victory belongs to you because of him. That's who you are in Christ Jesus. My question is, do you ever think we get so busy pursuing our own titles, our own aspirations, and our own dreams that we completely forget about who we are in him. Well, maybe today will serve as a reminder. There are three things that are keeping you, three things that are keeping me from loving God. First, we reject God's authority. Second, we love ourselves too much. And third, we find our identity in self. The question then becomes, Is there anyone in all of the world who can love God rightly? I mean, I can't love God rightly because I know that I'm guilty of one of those three things literally all of the time. And if you're honest with yourself, you can't love God rightly because at some point in your life, you're probably guilty of those things as well. Is there anyone who doesn't reject God's authority? Is there anyone who loves themselves or who doesn't love themselves too much or who doesn't find their identity in themselves? Why don't you flip over with me to the book of Philippians? It's the very next book. I want to read a little bit of chapter 2 to you. And listen to this. This is what it says. It says in verse 1 of chapter 2, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort and love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy of being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Listen, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. Is there anyone who can love God 
holistically, fully, in the way that we know we're supposed to? Yes. And his name is Jesus. See, Jesus didn't reject God's authority. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. The Bible says even obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. And he, even though he was God, the Bible tells us he emptied himself of any self-obsession and he became a servant, even washing the feet of his own creation. And even though he is God, he let go of his own identity and self because even though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Church family, there are five evidences of loving God. Five quick evidences. I'm not going to expound on these. I'm just going to give them to you real quickly. The first one is this. You love God when there's an increasing desire to spend time with him. If you want to know, am I a person, a child of God who really loves him? Do you see an increasing desire in your life to just spend time with him? Maybe that's time in prayer. Maybe that's sitting at his feet and resting in a desolate place and just communing with him. Maybe that's opening up the word of God and just letting him pour into you. Maybe that's song choice and selection, being altered in your car as you go to and from work. Whatever the case may be, do you see an increasing desire to spend time with God? Second, second evidence of loving God is this, an increasing desire to depend on God, to depend on him. You recognize that if anything's going to happen in your life, it's going to happen because he allows it to happen. So you just kind of cast all your weight on him. You fully surrender and you quit trying to control and dictate and determine the outcome of events of your own life. And you say, Lord, I'm just going to trust you. I'm going to let you guide me and I'm going to follow you every step of the way. Do you see an increasing desire just to depend on him? Third, is there an increasing desire to flee from sin? Is there an increasing desire to flee from sin? Are you willing to do whatever it takes so that sin does not exist in your life? If that means confess it, confess it. If that means rehab, rehab. If that means counseling, counseling. Whatever it takes for you to see sin literally out of your life, are you willing to do that? Another evidence of loving God is fourth, an increasing desire to gather with God's people. I mean, when you miss, like, do you really feel a pain because those are the people of God. Let me give you a, an example of this. My wife and I spent the last three days uh, pouring into college students in North Carolina. And we knew this before we committed to it. And we were dreading it. But we knew that the last session of pouring into these students in North Carolina was going to start at 7 o'clock. That means it's probably going to be over around 8 o'clock. Which means we're not going to get on the road until 9 o'clock. And it's a six-hour drive. Which doesn't put us home until 2 or 3 o'clock. And then I got to preach to you this morning. Now, God worked all of that out. They moved the session up to 6.15. We got out about 7.30, and we got home about 1.30. So it wasn't near as bad as we thought. But at the end of the day, the truth of the matter is, is we wanted to be with you. We wanted to be with God's people. And fifth and finally, is there an increasing desire to tell others about him? Do you see within yourself an increasing desire that you want the whole world to know. Every neighbor in your neighborhood, every coworker in your workplace, the person in the cubicle next door to you, I mean literally every single person you come into contact with, there's an increasing desire. I want them to know about Jesus. Church, we are a church that loves God. And there is something in all of our lives that is keeping us from doing that to the best of our ability. My goal today is to remove any hindrance of us being collectively and individually a people who love him well.